0: The challenges and opportunities of artificial intelligence in South Dakota. From SDPB Radio today is Friday, July twenty eighth. This is in the moment. Coming up this hour, our tech radio segment explores AI technology and the importance of ensuring our policymakers understand it. We welcome Dakota State University President Jose Marie Griffiths and Amos Asup for our conversation. We'll check in on the South Dakota wildfire outlook. How will high rainfall followed by the high heat of August combine to define our wildfire season? Plus new music for your summer listening list. Fresh tracks is later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh, you're in the moment. Each year, more of our summer thunderstorms are coming in clusters that are hundreds of miles long. They can cause injuries and serious property damage. The storms are derechos. Last summer, two derechos swept through the state, causing damage that some people continue to heal from. SDPB's Elizabeth
1: Jones reports. Emily and Cody Stahl work a family cattle operation in Bridgewater, about an hour west of Sioux Falls. The farm has been in Cody's family for five generations. Last year, severe weather hit their place. Twice. In May, the first storm brought winds of more than 100 miles per hour. Emily, who's a vet, was doing relief work at the Hartford Veterinary Clinic. She waited out the storm there. Cody and their two kids were with his parents in their basement. He says it's by God's grace that they weren't injured.
2: Emily was supposed to be driving home. My son was in front of the window, he, not even one years old, being rocked by my father that 15 minutes later was shattered and debris flying through that window.
1: While their house was left mostly intact, they lost five barns. Cody's parents' house had its windows blown out. They're still cleaning up debris. Cody was the first to see the damage.
2: I remember my gut just got tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. It was like, what more am I going to find? And you just you kept finding things even in the days to come. Mm-hmm. It took five generations to build our family farm. And in 20 minutes, the infrastructure of that was gone.
1: The rebuilding had to wait on insurance settlements and building materials. Cody says this was a blessing in disguise. They hadn't started rebuilding when the second storm hit in July. The stalls say they've had to wait a lot this year. That's partly because damage from the storms was so widespread that it prompted a disaster declaration for 28 counties. Despite waiting for decisions from insurance and assistance programs, Cody says he appreciates that much of their help has come from local contacts. They've rebuilt everything essential to their family business. Friends helped rebuild their hoop barn last fall, Their shop was rebuilt right before Christmas. Now they're finishing up repairs, putting on doors, burying electrical lines, and working on cosmetic fixes.
2: I feel very fortunate to be able to look back a year and see where we are today. And life is not normal, but life is very functional, as far as we're doing our day to day as what we were a year ago.
1: The stalls are proud of how far they've come, but Emily says they had doubts along the way.
2: I think that our kids made us stick it out longer Mm -hmm.
1: with, like, I think if it would just been coding I would have been like, well, that's our sign. But wanting to have something to give for them to continue on when we're gone really was kind of dug our heels in, I think, and just said, we're gonna, we're gonna find a way. We're not giving up this soon. The widespread windstorms ripped through farm country and did damage in cities too, including Sioux Falls. Roots of Brazil is a family owned restaurant downtown. Co-owner Mark Gillespie is the general manager and operates the dining room. He says they had just opened for business about a week before the May storm forced them to close.
3: It was a different opening experience than your average small business owner goes through, I would say. It kind of hurt our honeymoon period, which every business gets.
1: Gillespie says the wind tore part of their kitchen's ventilation system off the building's exterior, exposing a gas pipe. He says they immediately had help turning off the gas.
3: There was just a gas pipe just gushing out air or gushing out gas. So we had to shut that off. And then once that happens, there is no more. What can we do creative? Your kitchen's done.
1: The restaurant was closed for more than three weeks while they made repairs. Gillespie says that hurt their business. Customers who missed social media updates showed up only to find locked doors. Gillespie says it dampened the excitement generated from a new restaurant. However, working with family provided extra support and Gillespie says the lessons he learned from the storm are still part of his life.
3: I think you have to learn from every negative in life and certainly in business. You can't just sit here and hope things won't happen because it's not a perfect world and you need to be prepared.
1: The May and July storms of 2022 are classified as derechos by the National Weather Service. Those are storms at least 400 miles long and 60 miles wide that hit wind speeds of at least 58 miles per hour. Thomas Galerno is a scientist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's National Severe Storms Laboratory. He says this could represent a new trend.
4: So in terms of any trends, it's hard to say for a variety of reasons, but certainly the last few years it's been more frequent than what has occurred in the past.
1: The frequency of severe weather seems to be on the rise. So Galerno and the Sioux Falls Office of the National Weather Service advise taking severe thunderstorm warnings seriously. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Elizabeth Jones. You're listening to In The Moment on South
0: Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Drought and heat make for not only a stifling summer, but also a potentially fiery one. Dr. Darren Clayboat is our state fire meteorologist, and he's joining us from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital studio for an update on the drought situation and how a recent heat wave might affect wildfires this season. Darren, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me again. Now, when I was just out in the Black Hills not too long ago, it rained every night and everything was green. So tell me a little bit about the current drought situation.
5: Well, out here in the Black Hills, it's it's obviously different than it is on the southeast side of the state. Um, you know, we've had great precipitation on the on the western third of of the state, especially in the Black Hills. Uh, well above average precipitation everywhere, and that's done wonderful things in terms of the drought that we've been seeing kind of over the past eighteen months. Definitely diminished the drought on the western side of the state, uh, but the eastern side of the state's a different story. Uh, really, you know, it's the southeastern quarter of South Dakota. Definitely drier than average. Uh, some recent precipitation has been helping that out. Uh, but overall, it's still very dry. You know, if you look at the U.S. drought monitor, it's anywhere from abnormally dry conditions, I think, up to, to D2 drought conditions. Mm-hmm. So definitely uh, below average precipitation there. Uh, and, of course, western side of the state, above average precipitation. So it's really a, a tale of which side of the Missouri River you're on.
0: Right. So, as in so many things. Um, tell me a little bit about that, that growth that you have. The growth of fuels with the rain—it makes a lot of things grow, and that can be a challenge as well. What are you looking at for that?
5: When we look at fire, of course, everything's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Uh, you know, dry seasons, of course, we look for enhanced fire danger, and and when we get to wet seasons, we're we're growing all of that fuel that's on the landscape. And when I talk about fuel, really, I'm talking about whatever fires burning, and and, and most of the time, that is the grass. With a season like we've had so far in the Black Hills, we've grown a lot of that grass. Uh, You can walk through the landscape and it's hip high or even chest high in some places. But of course, you know, grass is an annual type of vegetation. It's going to die off and it will dry out. And so all eyes are focused, uh, you know, towards the next month or two as, as the plant phenology starts to wane in the way of drying that grass down. And we're going to really, you know, potentially pick up uh, more fire potential uh, as those grasses die off. So definitely looking towards the fall or late summer months yet uh, to see maybe an increase in fire potential. And uh, but yeah, I mean, we'll have to kind of keep our eye on the forecast to see what what comes down the road.
0: Yeah, let's talk about the heat, especially in the um, east of the river, that southeast quarter where they're experiencing, we're experiencing all this uh, drought, and then also this incredibly. Uh, Punitive. It feels like heat index. How does that intersect?
5: Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, what was it Wednesday? I think uh, yeah. Sioux Falls recorded or it tied the record high temperature for the day at 105 or 106. You know, Pierre's been up at 107 here in Rapid City. It's been upper 90s to lower 100s. You know, it's definitely exacerbating those drought conditions. When we get these really hot temperatures, uh, what we call the evapotranspiration rate increases. So that combines evaporation, you know, as the sun hits the soil, soil dries out through process of evaporation, and then transpiration, water coming out of the plants. When we get to these excessive temperatures, we really boost those evapotranspiration rates, which implies that we're drying out our fuels much more quickly. If we look at a portion of the state like southeastern South Dakota, where there's already drought conditions, there's not a lot of soil moisture to begin with. So when we increase those temperatures, we're drawing moisture out of the plants, and those plants are trying to draw moisture out of the soils, but they just can't. There's nothing down there. And so those drought conditions can – it's a positive feedback mechanism. You know, the hotter it gets, the drier it gets. The drier it is, the hotter it can get, and it can really lead to kind of a flash drought or a sudden drought uh, scenario, which is definitely not what we want to see this time of the year.
0: Yeah. How are we being impacted by anything that's happening globally, you know, uh, you know increasing ocean temperatures or El Nino season? What, kind of where are we at in that context?
5: Wow! Right now, Mm -hmm. wow, it's um, it's incredibly warm worldwide. Uh, We're seeing record or near record uh, air temperatures globally. Sea surface temperatures globally are well beyond uh, record levels. It's it's pretty incredible what's happening out there. Uh, we're entering into an El Nino situation and an El Nino just means that the eastern uh, equatorial waters in the Pacific are, are warmer than average uh, and that really disrupts global uh, wind patterns and so that can you know, affect our weather here in, in South Dakota or it, it does affect uh, the weather worldwide. So right now, yeah, we're entering into this El Nino. Uh, The past three years were a La Nina, which was a cooling of the eastern equatorial Pacific waters. But yeah, we're diving into this El Nino. And frankly, the El Nino doesn't really impact the northern Great Plains too much this time of the year. It tends to bring us warmer than average winters. Um, And again, going back to this idea of all of this fuel on the landscape, if we have above average temperatures this winter, we can still get big fires. And frankly, if we look at the past five or six years across South Dakota, all our big fires have happened uh, during the cold season anyways. So that's definitely something that I'm keeping on uh, on my radar.
0: Okay. so Don't n- mind the pun. Right. <laughs> Near-term outlook for the current fire danger. Tell me about that.
5: Yeah. Western South Dakota, we're still in pretty good shape. Uh, we've had a few small fires uh, here and there. Uh, you know, a couple of lightning-started fires in the Black Hills, a couple around the prairies. Nothing's gotten out of hand. Southeastern South Dakota, especially around the Missouri River breaks, if we run, you know, all the way from Sioux City, Iowa, all the way up the river towards Pier and up towards uh, kind of, you know, the Moe the Bridge area, I'm definitely a little concerned about the Missouri River Breaks area. The grasses are definitely drying out. Those are the areas that we've seen these drought conditions, the warmer than average conditions. And uh, from the folks that I've been talking to, you know, the eastern red cedar that's in all of those breaks is starting to dry out and it, it could become receptive to fire very soon. So, western side of South Dakota, not too concerned. Southeastern side of South Dakota, going up through the Missouri River Breaks, definitely on. Uh, definitely I'm thinking about it in terms of enhanced fire potential there.
0: Yeah, do we have the response time in that region that we have and maybe the Black Hills? Are we as used to looking for things?
5: Oh, definitely. Uh, You know, we have some municipal fire departments out there. Our volunteer fire departments are amazing. I I regularly talk to a lot of our volunteer fire department chiefs in those areas, and they're well-equipped, well-prepped, and and ready to go. They do fantastic work. And, of course, we have some interagency partners across Central and and Eastern South Dakota, uh, between Game Fish and Parks, between our our tribal partners, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service. We're definitely ready to go.
0: All right. So nationwide, I want to know before we let you go about any other current hot hotspots. Uh, we all remember the wildfires in uh, California, of course, and then those Canadian wildfires, which make it uh, very difficult for us to breathe or see uh, see the horizon when that smoke comes through. What do you know there?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Nationwide, uh, it's been a pretty slow fire season, frankly. Uh, spent, I did spend a couple of weeks out in Colorado a couple of weeks ago on, on what was called the Spring Creek Fire uh, near Parachute, uh, and that fire burned about 3,000 acres, which is you know relatively small considering the time of the year. Right now, Oregon, Washington, western Montana, Idaho are starting to get warm and dry. We're, we're getting some fires breaking out in, in those locations. Uh, California, there's some concerns there with this wet of a winter as they had. But, of course, we can't not talk about Canada. They've had an enormous fire, record-setting fire year by leaps and bounds, all the way from British Columbia east towards Quebec. It's been unbelievable up there.
0: Yeah. Mm. All right. State fire meteorologist Dr. Darren We always appreciate you stopping by. We'll talk to you soon, I'm sure.
5: Well, thanks for having me.
0: You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, certain moves by social media giants are shaking up the tech playing field. The iconic blue bird is going the way of the dodo as a new social platform steps forward to infringe on its territory. Plus, we take a look at other tech news headlines hitting the digital front pages. Amos Asap is Chief Security Officer for Exigent Solutions in Sioux Falls, and he's with me in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio. Welcome back, Amos.
6: Hey, good afternoon.
0: And Dr. Jose Marie Griffiths is president at Dakota State University in Madison, and she's going to talk about a Senate briefing she moderated on one of our favorite tech topics, artificial intelligence. Dr. Griffiths is with us by the phone. Welcome back. Thanks for being here.
7: Thanks. Thanks for the invitation.
0: We want to start with you, Dr. Griffiths, and uh, talk about this briefing you gave to uh, senators about artificial intelligence. First of all, thank you for doing that on all of our behalfs, and uh, give us an idea of what specifically some of the challenges are to get policymakers at that level to understand about AI tech.
7: Uh, Thank you. Um, That's that's quite a challenge, actually, when you think about it, because um, artificial intelligence isn't in and of itself a single technology. It's a range of technologies, which is why uh, the world is moving very, very quickly. And there seem to be headlines every other day with something new that's coming out that we can try and see how it works. But at the same time, these things are moving so quickly, and we're really not sure about the full potential, whether they can uh, do harm or, or, or be harnessed for good. So, I think it's I think it's absolutely a great move forward that the Senate decided they wanted to educate themselves before they start regulating. And um, they're not really sure how to regulate. So I think this is great. And hopefully, uh, what they're learning, this was the third of three briefings that they were having um that they have learned quite a bit more than they knew before, not not to mention the fact they've now developed relationships with people in the field who can answer questions as they arise going forward. The specific focus of our session was very much on what's the federal government doing. So we had um, people on the, uh, the panel were from the uh, U.S. Department of Energy, the Office of uh, uh, Science and Innovation, the uh, Defense um, Advanced Projects Agency, DARPA, and the National Science Foundation. And we were talking about, about part in the fact there were sort of some general statements about the importance of AI and the things that it could enable Um if harnessed correctly, and if we had the right resources to to do to do more, um, they we were asking about uh, where they are now, uh, what they're doing with artificial intelligence, um, what would they like to have in the way of resources, and then I thought a very very good question, particularly given that the first panel was focused on the corporate developments in AI, was what is the unique role? What can the federal government bring uniquely? to the development and deployment of artificial intelligence. It's not that the federal government should be copying and creating the, the uh, um, uh, chatgpt.gov or anything like that. They can, they can acquire those systems. But what does the federal government have in the way of specialized data or special uh, applications and needs or particular high-end um, security kinds of projects? that might not otherwise be addressed. And so uh, our panelists were uh, responding to questions that I asked them along those lines. And then we had a, a more open session when the senators could ask questions.
0: Dr. Griffiths, did you find during that time that there were certain themes that emerged that show the gaps in understanding? Like people would keep asking something and you'd say, yeah, what you don't really understand is this. And then, you know, five minutes later, somebody asked the same question and you thought, yeah, what you don't understand is the same thing. Were there thematic gaps in knowledge? Um, there,
7: there, were, there were a couple that that emerged. Um one of them was the fact that we can only go so far with the current underlying uh, sort of enabling technologies, if you like, to really train AI uh, AI models. Um, you need to have lots and lots and lots of data to manage and process lots and lots and lots of data. You have to have really high performing computers. And we have the supercomputers, as we call them, exascale computers. And we don't have very many of them because they are so specialized. Um, what I found in, uh, interesting, as people were talking about the limits that they have, um, things that take months and months and months to process, will eventually come along with the newly emerging technologies, I believe quantum computing will help address those problems because it's just going to be um massive scale of computation and, and data processing uh, that we that we can't even imagine at the moment. So that was one gap uh, in, in the process. The other one was... You know, There's a lot of focus on the technologies and a lot of focus on what they may or may not do, but um, it kept coming up. The other set of questions were very much related to workforce issues. How do we build the workforce to do this? We know, uh, I'll give you an example, there's, there is a lot of good data on the number of the available jobs in the United States in the area of cybersecurity um, in the order of, depending on the day you go and look at the data, 650,000 to 750,000. Um, we predict that there are going to be even more jobs created for AI. So how are we going to get the workforce developed, created for us to do things? And um, uh, that was one question that I've been interacting with a senator on. And basically, uh, even if we could get as much domestic talent as we can squeeze out of the population, it's probably not going to be enough. We're going to have to have um, solid immigration policies also to bring in the best and the brightest in these arenas, work with our allies so that we can actually um, develop the level of, of, um, of uh, capability and talent that's going to be needed to solve these massive problems.
0: I think that's a great opportunity to bring Amos Asap into the conversation. First of all, I think you two should know each other. If you don't already, and maybe you do, and I'm behind this, but um, Amos workforce has to be something that you have seen a ton of um, on the front lines with cybersecurity in oh, your work.
6: Absolutely. it's 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 uh, you know It's, it's been a, sor- a shortage for a long time. Um, certainly the pandemic uh, made things a little bit harder there. Um, but we've had we've had that issue for a long time, and AI is yeah, I agree is going to make it harder. Um, AI is moving so fast; it, it it seems like it's something that just sprung up, uh, you know, just a few months ago. And now all of a sudden, uh, we've got multiple variants. We've got people who are putting these out uh, uh, for good and for bad purposes. Right there, there are items out there like Worm GPT that are out there for nefarious purposes to allow you to create malware and that sort of stuff, and that cybersecurity need to combat that sort of thing, A, needs to keep up with what the bad guys are doing, uh, and B, we have a shortage already. And it's not just a shortage of security, but a shortage of AI knowledge in general. It's so hard, even for those of us who are in the industry who are trying to keep up with all of the AI information to understand what the variations are and what unique idiosyncrasies you might want to focus on in order to be part of that cybersecurity workforce, Um, it's going to be interesting. There's going to be a lot of niche kind of areas for people to go into and focus on, uh, but it's going to be hard to find enough talent and enough uh, workforce to get that done.
0: So I want to broaden this a little bit as if this already wasn't expanding my head enough, but when we talk about moving fast... And we're also talking about some of these um, changes in social media, in Meta and Twitter. I go back to move fast and break things, the original Facebook motto where you had a bunch of young cats in the room and they're just going, and then they were accused of you know, breaking democracy in mm-hmm. 2022. So when we move fast, I'm going to start with Amos and then ask uh, Dr. Griffiths to chime in on this ethics question. Is it possible to move as fast as we need to move, but also do it in a way that creates a world that we want to live in?
6: That's that, that's a tough ethical question. Um, you know, the, the whole mantra of, of move fast and break things uh, works really well when you are, when you have something small that uh, doesn't affect a lot of people, um, that isn't something of the size or the scale of like a meta or a, or a Twitter um, and that sort of stuff where people, you know, we've come to depend on those sorts of uh, pieces of the internet. Uh, When people lose access to Twitter, when they lose access to Facebook, or whatever it happens to be, uh, you know, originally, that was, you know, was intended for entertainment purposes. And now you're, you're missing out on your news, you're missing out on your own, honestly, echo chambers of the people that you want to talk to and you want to interact with. And so when you do break things, uh, it causes uh, a lot of problems. But it, it, it's going to be difficult moving forward in the future to continue to move at that speed, but at the same time, that speed is going to be um, is going to be moved forward in AI and things that we want to keep up with, like a security focus, and, and that's going to be tough to do.
0: Jose Marie Griffiths, you're talking about you know defense and energy and as uh, you know National Science Foundation, we got to move fast, we got to be competitive we got to be secure, but we also have to be ethical and focus on functioning in a democracy that other countries are looking toward. Yeah, just a small question. What <laughs> What stands out in that
7: question for you that you
0: think would be relevant for listeners right now? Okay, well,
7: I'll, I'll, I'll try and summarize. Um, in the national security realm, we cannot slow down too much. We do need to be careful and cautious. I think we need to be open and transparent about, uh, uh, particularly in the, uh, you know, when we're using AI and when we're using uh, limited data sets. But ultimately, I think the, the main message that evolved out of the uh, session we had with the Senate is we are in a race and it's real. And we need to out invest, we need to out innovate, we need to out protect, and we need to out educate. And we're going to have to move on all these forums rather than the notion I I think what started a lot of this uh, media frenzy was the notion of a pause. Everybody was, you know, oh, maybe we should pause. I didn't support pause. I, I don't think we should pause. What I do think is we should focus our efforts for regulation to the extent that we have it. Um, And we certainly won't have as much as the European Union intends to have. But what we need to do is to focus on AI applications that have the potential to harm life um, and focus on those critical areas first. You know, It doesn't really matter what um, an AI-based innovation, uh, innovation does in terms of recommending uh, what you purchase or what, what entertainment you take, um, but it is going to be important if it's going to determine um, whether you get a mortgage or whether you're actually going to have access to, to health care in a, in a realistic way. So that's how I would break up the world. Let's focus on those that are life-critical, focus on those that have the potential to advantage one group over another, And then move
0: forward. All right. So how much um, hope do you have that this can be the work that you did with this panel was a nonpartisan group, but we're partisan people. um, And uh, do you hope that some of these policies, some of this regulation, some of this focus on um, life critical AI technology impacts can be done in a nonpartisan way? I, I
7: think so. I do have hope because both in um, in the interactions that I've had in Washington on cybersecurity and on AI, there is a lot of bipartisan support. Um, and you know, a protection of life is very, very important. If if we're using technologies to, um, you know, I, I, there's a there's a, a piece of legislation that's been drafted, for example. Let's make sure we have a human in the loop before we uh, launch uh, um, weapons of mass destruction. Let's not leave the decisions on weapons of mass destruction to be fully automated and autonomous. I mean, you know, and we can take that back to our world level and talk about uh, the healthcare environment and to talk about the, the, um, uh, police and criminal justice environment. How can we ensure that the, uh, systems that we're putting in place are appropriate and fair and just. And we also at the same time have to recognize there are those people as, a uh, uh we've just heard, uh, are actually going to want to do bad things. Um, There are going to be, you know, criminal gangs want to do it, people want to do it for money, Um, uh, nation states want to uh, see uh, 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 more more developed states and uh, more uh, democratically aligned states um, fail. And so we're going to have to just beware and not be Pollyannish about this technology. Um, I don't think I see the end of humanity. That's certainly been in a lot of headlines. But at the same time, I don't see an awful lot in headlines that say what good artificial intelligence can bring at a major level. Uh, we were talking, uh, we were asked actually by Senator Rounds, what is the one thing, just pick one thing that we could do if, if we uh, came together as a country? Well, we believe that we could cure and prevent cancer with the right resources, the right investments, etc. cetera. We could do that within a reasonable time frame. So, you know, there are other big initiatives
0: that we could also put together in that realm. But Let's you know, start the there. Out. Let's start mm-hmm. with curing cancer. Why a- not? Yeah. A- why not? Amos, we talk about this a lot on our tech radio conversations, which is the, you know, desire for humans to kind of take the shortcut, for example. You know, the least denominator kind of comes up. But we also have what we hear Dr. Griffiths saying right here of these big aspirations, these big hopes. Uh, And some of those are within reach or are rapidly becoming within our reach what are you excited about in our last minute here?
6: Yeah, I I agree. I think these, uh, you know, I would I would that into the life critical type applications. You know, curing cancer. Um, you know, the big thing is as we move forward and as we uh, try to outpace those that are maybe doing the the malicious activity, uh, we do need to keep in mind that as we do things like cancer uh, or as we work on t- things like cancer, that we're going to be feeding these systems a lot more data that is around life critical type uh, information, uh, which could go both ways, it could go, you know, either the the positive or the negative. And so we need to make sure we've got some sort of constraints on that. And and we're finding right now that that those constraints are very difficult to maintain. Uh, People are finding ways around them. Um, You know, people, people are uh, clever, and as many constraints as we try to put into something to keep it from being a bad system, uh, people tend to find ways around that. And, and that's going to be a big piece to it, is how do we keep that information that's in there about everything we know about cancer to keep that from causing other additional life-critical type problems down mm-hmm. the road?
0: We are in a race. Let's make it a race right. for good. Yes, please. Ah, all right. Amos Asap, Chief Security Officer for Exigent Solutions in Sioux Falls. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate your time. You and a special treat, Dr. Jose Marie Griffiths, President of Dakota State University. feel like we should have another conversation in the future about out-education and dive into what's happening at DSU. But thanks for today. We'll talk to you next time.
7: Thanks, Laura.
0: You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. The South Dakota Festival of Books is in Deadwood this year. The timing of the festival in September means I spend most of August and all of September, a little bit of July, to be honest, reading titles from festival authors only. Tempe Javits is one of those authors. So for the next few weeks, the In the Moment team is going to surface conversations from our archives to help you get ready to read, write, and gather at the state's premier literary event. When Tempe Javits was a child, her grandmother's photographs decorated the walls of her childhood home, and so she always figured her grandma was a famous photographer. Well, she wasn't at that point. That might change soon, because Tempe is the author of a book called Bighorn Visions, The Photography of Jessamine Spear Johnson. is published by the South Dakota Historical Society Press. I talked with Javits in May. Tell me a little bit about your grandmother and growing up surrounded by her art. Uh,
8: my grandmother, uh, she passed away in 1978, um, a few years after She appeared at my wedding in 1971, but I had known her since I was a child. And her photographs, as I said before, were all over our um, ranch home in Kirby, Montana. And um, she had grown up in uh, Bighorn, Wyoming, which is just across the border from where I grew up. Um, And near uh, the town of Bighorn is a little village just outside of Sheridan, Wyoming and it never grew because the railroad went to Sheridan. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so she was born in 1886 and in um 19 I'm sorry, 1897, her mother Belle had um she was a frustrated artist and she picked up a camera. Heard about cameras and bought a camera. Yeah. And that satisfied her artistic whims and uh, my grandmother was like nine or ten at the point and, and she started helping her mother um, develop photographs and just fell in love with the process.
0: I, and go ahead yeah go ahead. No, I'm just enchanted so, by you know her vision of what she captured as well. When you look at uh, historical photographs of the time, she really has an artistic voice.
8: Yes, she does and she had, A series of artistic friends but she had no formal training um, other than she did take a couple of art classes at the local high school in Sheridan but that was I think she learned a lot by by paying attention to um, to what the local artists were doing she had several very important friends all of course, male artists who were well known now in, in museums, mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's been forgotten. But um, she paid attention to what they were doing um, and how they were, um, you know, and talked to them. They were they were family friends. Um, Bill Gollings, who's now quite famous, uh, was actually worked for one of her uncles and. And was often with the family when they went up into the Bighorns on pack trips and stuff. And there's in 1911 there's photos. She and her sister Elsa both became photographers as well as, you know, married and had families. Mm -hmm. And there's a photo uh, from that 1911 um, pack trip. Elsa took of him of Bill Galling sitting near the campfire and he's sketching. And then Jessamine took a picture of him the next morning when he was helping pack one of the pack horses. And so he was not only a family friend, but he had just graduated from three courses over three different winters at the um, uh, Chicago Art Institute. And you can bet that those two young ladies grilled him.
0: Yeah, yeah.
8: (laughs) What did he learn?
0: I don't think so. that the, the the door is closed on her becoming uh, wildly famous and having this work shown in national museums. But there is, I think? see, a, a tenderness to what she looks at. I mean, she takes those amazing action shots and the rodeo and the cowboys. But then here are the cowboys playing poker. Here is uh, the women's walking club. Here is still life with fish, still life with flowers. Here is... Uh, sweeping landscapes, uh, Native Americans in contemporary clothing as friends, you know, sitting on the step, uh, talking to people. There's just a lot that she turned her eye to. What yeah. impresses you about her, her vision or her range of subjects?
8: I think that, and I know within my own family growing up, and my dad is her fifth child, that there's a huge interest in, in um history and actually maybe living history actually paying attention to what's going on around you and i think she really understood somewhere deep within her that she was seeing things that were changing ranching was changing enormously over those period of time and so was so was the reservation life of the crow and the cheyenne that she was very familiar with and she just pointed her camera at it and said, look at this. <laughs>
0: yeah. You know? And, and um, she doesn't capture that as something that is in the past or that she's nostalgic about. She captures it as a living conversation. Yeah. And even though it is, it, what was her relationship with uh, neighbors that I mean, they lease land? There was a lot of back and forth. As, you know, she wasn't a photographer who came in, you know, posed people and then left.
8: No, and in fact, the pictures, uh, she knew a lot of the Crow and Cheyenne uh, families because they were leasing summer pasture from them. And the the photos, especially of the women, and there's quite a few that didn't even make it into the book, but she knew them personally, and unlike many male photographers, they allowed her literally inside the teepee. And there's so very few photos like that anywhere. I became aware of that as I was doing the research, and all of a sudden I thought, my goodness, she had access, unlike most men would ever have access. And uh, and that makes those photographs even more uh, important, I think, but it also sort of, like you said, it's an endearing. You can see the little smile on their face, yeah. and they're looking at her like, oh, hi, Jessamine."
0: <laughs> right. There is a friendly, yeah. like I said, a tenderness, a, a, a connectivity um, um, and oh. just the, the, the depictions of, of women, uh, you know, wearing pants, <laughs> on their saddles, oh, yes. participating in the roundup, you really get to see how the, the white women of the time were living their lives too, which I think is not often depicted in photography. Although
8: the matching haircuts.
1: <laughs> yeah.
8: that was a big change. Yeah. I remember my dad talking to us at the dining room table and saying, The cowboys didn't want those women at the roundup. (laughs) And I started riding in the roundup when I was four. I wasn't very useful, but, you know, it was easier than babysitting me, right? And I'm looking at him like, what? (laughs) And then he tells me, well, they were afraid that, you know, they would have to stop swearing and they would have to be very careful. What if she fell off her horse? And, you know, they just invented all sorts of problems yeah. that weren't there.
0: And then Jessamine Spear-Johnson is doing it with a camera. The South Dakota Festival of Books kicks off in Deadwood this year, September 21st. David Hirsrud and Larry Rohr have more new music for you to consider. It's all part of the summer listening list. Today's episode includes tunes from Dolly Parton and Tanya Tucker. Take a listen to Fresh Tracks.
4: Welcome back to Fresh Tracks. There's even more new music to talk about in this edition, and David Herzrud, our musical guide from Sturgis, South Dakota, is getting ready for the motorcycles to ramp up in another week and a half or so. (laughs) Good luck with that, David. Here they come. Here they come. (laughs) (laughs) The group Blur and The Narcissist is the first song. Why Blur? What do you like?
9: Well, they have been one of my favorite bands for years. When you go back into the, the mid-'90s, there was something called Brit Pop, and there were a couple of bands, Oasis for one, and Blur, who were, just, who, who were kind of leading the charge and came up with some absolutely fantastic music. It was kind of a throwback, I, I guess, to... You know, the days of the kinks okay. and bands like that. Yeah, I can hear
4: that.
7: I heard no echo, no echo. There was distortion everywhere. I found my ego. I felt rebuttal standing there.
9: They've got a new album coming out called The Ballad of Darren. I'm really interested in, in hearing it because I think Narcissist is just is a phenomenal song. One of my favorite songs of the year. The band itself, just about everybody is involved in individual projects okay. away from the band. Uh, Damon Albarn is uh, part of the virtual band, Gorillaz, wonderful music.
4: So the lead is the Narcissist, that's the uh, trailer to what's coming ahead for Ballad of Darren. Absolutely. Okay. I had no idea there was a group called Handsome Family. Right away I was thinking, this has got to be a real cult following type group. Am I right on that?
9: Oh, absolutely. Okay. You hit it right on the yeah. head. They've been a cult following, and <laughs> of course, I've been following it for years. <laughs> because the music is so exceptional. Smash the wind. songs, Far From Any Road, was the the main title theme for the first season of the HBO crime drama True Detective in in 2014. I would just tell people, this is a band that you need to hear. You need to listen to them. Songs like The Bottomless Hole, Bowling Alley Bar, My Sister's Tiny Hands, (laughs) and my favorite, if the world should end in
4: fire, not not a real deep, sophisticated sound, but but something that leaves you waiting for what are they going to do? What are they going to say next? So absolutely, yeah. Handsome family. The song's Joseph. The Dolly Parton world on fire. But
9: what I find interesting is this lady's willing to try different things. Uh, she made the comment that she had never made a rock and roll album. Yeah. Well, she has now.
2: gonna do when it all burns down fire fire burning higher still got time to turn it on around now i ain't one for speaking out much but that don't mean i
8: don't stay in touch everybody's tripping over this or that what we're gonna do when we all fall flat
9: when she put the word out that uh, she wanted to have some people help her Uh, You had Sting, Elton John, Paul McCartney, Ringo, Stevie Nicks, all stepped up and said they wanted to be part of this experience. The album's coming out in November. There's 30 songs. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's going all the way on this. 21 of the songs are covers uh, with nine originals.
4: If you're a Dolly Parton fan, you you will enjoy it. Because there's some great music that's uh, in line for this.
9: Gotta sit there and and applaud the lady for doing it.
4: Yeah, and, you know, and I'm 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 not surprised that Tanya Tucker has had such a long career. But what I like about uh, the song "Breakfast in Birmingham," where Brandy Carlisle joins in as uh, featured in the song, is you still hear some of the vocal expression that's always been Tanya Tucker.
8: Just a little static. Breaking up the Beatles AM wake up Tuesday morning tunes It's a turquoise blue good morning With the copper eagle fly Whipping through the plains north across the motel rendezvous
3: You know me, I'm still moving Just as slow as old molasses Bacon cooked up good and crisp gone
4: Her voice has been like she's been in the in the and the Jack Daniels a little bit but it but she really works it well.
9: Some people might simply say that uh, this is a comeback album. This is her 26th album. She came out with an album in 2019 while I'm Living which won uh, the best country album and best country song. And I think this album is is even better. Her career <laughs> reads like a little bit of a soap opera. Yeah. <laughs> but you got to remember, she was a star at the age of thirteen.
4: Yeah. A lot of people don't survive that. Yeah. And, and she survived it pretty. She survived it pretty well. Breakfast in Birmingham. Jessie Ware, free yourself. Tell us about Jessie Ware.
9: Well, uh, she's an English pop singer and songwriter. She's also a broadcaster. Mm. Uh, This is her fifth album that I feel good. It's disco funk. Some people will disparage disco music. The music is absolutely wonderful. I like it. has a uh, podcast called table matters that she does with her mother Mm. wonderful wonderful singer great voice i love the music
4: yeah free yourself give it a listen that's jesse ware tanya tucker has breakfast in birmingham with brandy carlisle it's the rock album it's coming out a little later but uh you'll hear the world on fire and Dolly Parton, I think rightly so, in the Rock and Roll Music Hall of Fame, a really, really unique group called Handsome Family. Also, the album The Ballad of Darren featuring the song The Narcissist from the group Blur. And as always, enjoying the summer is David Herzrud. Thanks, David.
9: Hey, good listening, my friend.
7: As cheap as
3: gas is here. dollar doesn't mean
0: it. You can find our full Fresh Tracks conversations on our website, sdpb.org music. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you on the next In the Moment Monday. If you ever wondered if those rising prices are fueled more by corporate greed than fiscal policy, Joe Santos explains greedflation theory and, spoiler alert, why it does not explain the price you pay for your favorite goods and services. Plus, Matt Wiesner has a little Summer with the Symphony for you as well. If you enjoyed our conversation with fire meteorologist Darren Claybo, you can head to SDPB's YouTube channel, to see that we'll post it later on in the day if you want to see photos of katie kreitzer from earlier in the week flying through the air for an aerial workout head to sdpb's instagram page in the moment's producers alan kester and ari youngman thanks for everything you do this week jordan henderson videographer thank you colton nicholson engineer from all of us at sdpb radio i'm Lori walsh thanks for listening